Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the News New Books Network. I'm Candela Marini, your host, and today we're talking to Ana Beatriz Ribeiro about her book, Modernization Dreams, Lusotropical Promises, a Global Studies Perspective on Brazil-Mozambique Development Discourse. It was published by Brill Press this very year, 2020. So welcome, Ana Ribeiro, and thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Um, so this book is based on your PhD thesis, but also on your own life experiences. Um, so I think it would be very nice if you could give us an idea of the person and the experiences behind this book, um, telling us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in global studies and particularly in development discourses. Well, I grew up as part of the upper middle class in Brazil. And... I always felt like something was off, uh, but I couldn't really realize um, the extent of racism in the country until I moved abroad. Uh, I moved to the United States when I was uh, 13 years old and then started having discussions in school and then later on in college at Florida International University about racism in Brazil, as seen also from the perspective of scholars who had been there. And then I started thinking about the way that we were indoctrinated to believe that there was no racism in Brazil, that it was a multicultural society that was open to all sorts of uh, different races and cultures and immigrants, because it is a country of immigrants um, from all over the place. And But at the same time that Brazil has prided itself in that, uh, politically and also ostensibly in society, there was all, always an undercurrent. Um, there are always sort of uh, inappropriate jokes being made uh, that people would just laugh off. Um, there's basically this um, psychological segregation from uh, especially Black people and the fact that they have very little social mobility in Brazil but at the same time, we were told growing up there that they were, you know, part of the family. If they worked as housekeepers, then they were part of our family. And um, but it, it took me a while to to interrogate these things. I think the outside lenses helped me a lot with that to see my country from uh, different perspectives and taking some distance from it. And then as I progressed in my studies, uh, when I moved to Europe uh, ten years ago. I started looking into relations between Brazil and Africa at the state level, and I became interested in that when I interned at the World Health Organization in 2011 as part of the Erasmus Mundus Global Studies uh, program um, uh, while I was doing this program. And I actually uh, started 
assembling blue trunk libraries. These are uh, mobile health libraries that are sent to African countries of Portuguese language. Uh, so I, I was doing that in my internship. And I was told that uh, the biggest donor of books was Brazil and the biggest recipient was Mozambique. But then I realized that I, while my colleagues knew a lot about Brazil, I knew very little about Mozambique. Uh, we had not been taught about African countries properly in school in Brazil. And so I decided to visit Mozambique uh, for my master thesis, for writing my master thesis. And I stayed with a, a fellow intern from Mozambique. And she basically took me by the hand and showed me around. And then I started meeting people and asking them about their views on Brazilian culture. And through those connections there, I started meeting, you know, uh, people in government, um, Brazilian diplomats, people involved in Brazilian corporations in Mozambique. And I started investigating their, their cooperation and also how People from Mozambique saw people from Brazil and how people from Brazil saw people from, from Mozambique, their impressions of each other. And then slowly I started getting into uh, the, the discourse that, that uh, I investigate in my book. Yeah, you tell this anecdote of the moment where um, you realized that um, Brazil was an impo important donor uh, from Mozambique and this kind of um, awakening moment, right, where you suddenly saw the two countries in a very different perspective from that of um, that you had seen previously, particularly from an European and also North American perspective while studying there, if I got you right from what you say in the book, um, because I, I got the feeling that um, you propose a critique or, or, or at least a problem in saying that a lot of the people that study uh, global studies, but also development discourses, and um, many researchers, even those belonging to the global south, um, study and, and are very much trained in the in research centers in the global north, and that this has an effect an effect on on the way they understand development projects and the modernization paradigm in general. Would you agree or? Well, definitely uh, to a certain extent, because where they're studying, there's a certain tradition, there's a certain uh, theoretical background and way of thinking and disciplinary background. Um, but in my case, interestingly enough, it took me moving to the global north to be more critical towards it, you know, because growing up in Brazil, we very much wanted to be as white as possible. And development meant being white and being a certain and having wearing certain name brands, you know, driving certain cars, you know. And um, I started to interrogate this and I actually saw this also in Mozambique. And I saw this. We have this in common in many parts of the quote unquote developing world, you know. So studying in the north and also like in an institution like Leipzig University that is critical towards that approach helped me see it in a different way. So it really, it also depends on uh, your institution's approach to African studies. So I think they are self-critical here towards a Eurocentric model, you know, and they deconstruct these things more. 
since you mentioned this a few times already, would you like to explain a little bit more um, this Brazilian myth of uh, racial democracy and um, and the attempts uh, throughout the 19th and 20th century, particularly 19th century, of um, whitening the society or, or at least the ideal of whitening the society? Yeah, so um, for a while... Um, After slavery, we had uh, in Brazil uh, this initiative to bring a lot of um, labor immigrants from Europe to whiten the population. And um, actually, this didn't start with him, but Gilberto Freire, who I talk a lot about in the book, he was the one of the first authors to um, recognize some sort of influence of African people in Brazilian society. And, um, and talk about uh, a mixing of influences between them and the Portuguese. And he wasn't the first to um, recognize the Portuguese influence in Brazilian society, of course, but he was the first to recognize this mingling of influences. Um, but at the same time, he became friends with the Salazar dictatorship in Portugal, And he started being a defender of colonialism. So you have, on one hand, you know, a recognition of black people's influence, and on the other hand, a very strong colonial agenda because Portugal was trying to hang on to its Portuguese colonies, uh, even into the 1970s. You know, there was a colonial war, whereas other colonial powers had given up their colonies before. So he became a sort of um, an official diplomat for both. Portuguese and Brazilian political strategies or political agendas. And uh, part of this was to say that in countries like Portugal and Brazil, there was no racial intolerance and that racism in Portuguese colonies was a myth. And he would say that they were not even colonies. They were overseas provinces of Portugal. So this both served to defend the Portuguese colonial cause and, um, To, to build up nationalism in Brazil, to unite people around a certain discourse, to say, you know, Brazil is a tolerant country and it was molded by the Portuguese, it was molded by the Africans, and we have this sort of ideal race that has come out of it, which is, you know, the, the mixed race in Brazil. But, but he all, always put the Portuguese above the Africans to a certain mm -hmm. extent. He said that the main influence was the Portuguese influence in Brazilian society because they were the transatlantic miscegenators of the world. So, and um, he was also marketing Brazil as the ideal society to be copied in African countries. Did they, was there a place for the indigenous communities in, in the Brazilian model? Well, he talked a little bit about the indigenous communities, uh, but his focus was more on, on Africa. I think also because Brazil had an interest in a market in African countries. So he moved this theory from Brazilian domestic society to abroad to including these, um, these other countries in order to, uh, as I said before, advance both the Portuguese and the Brazilian agendas. And he portrayed Brazil as the heir of Portuguese influence in Africa. 
So there was very much a political strategic component to to his books, especially after the, the 1950s. Right. I want to talk more about Freire, but uh, before I would like to st take a step back and maybe you can give us an idea of um, or an overview of the history of the idea of development itself and how it, it is tied to colonial discourses such as the civilizing missions and things like that so that then we can better understand what um, Freire was doing in the mid-20th century. Um, so the idea of development as we know it today um, came to the fore under President Truman, Truman of the United States. He uh, gave his inaugural address where he talked about um, basically countries that were receiving uh, American aid through the Marshall Plan they were supposed to spread, quote-unquote, civilization and to spread liberal capitalist ideals to other countries as a thank you for this. So they were supposed to make these countries into their image um, through development aid. And then um, at the time, still, uh, there are a lot of uh, colonies in Africa, uh, including, of course, the countries of official Portuguese language in Africa. And um, the international organizations jumped on board and um, they also helped colonial powers by giving money, you know, for them to implement development project in their colonies. And this happened uh, with Portugal. So you can see I found archi archival documents of Uh, aid from the World Health Organization, for example, and um, the idea of technical cooperation, which Brazil advertises as its main sort of development aid as something, in a sense, innovative, actually, uh, already in the 50s was being implemented by the United Nations, and the discourse hasn't changed that much. So a lot of these discourses around development, about uh, around modernization, rapid industrialization with external help and uh, making basically a homogenous capitalist society across the world. That, this, that hasn't changed that much, even though we have had other theories pop up, such as Dependencia, that uh, claim to challenge this idea, like the core of modernization, in my view, has not been uh, challenged. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about the different terminology? Because it's true, there are a lot of um, ways of defining the inequalities and differences in power and wealth in the world, right? You have North and South, West and East, First and Third World, and yeah, Center and Periphery, and now Um, mostly global north and global south. What's what's the difference between all the, these terms? And yeah, has anything actually changed? I think the terminology of third world is not so much used anymore because um, over the past few decades, you have had the emerging powers come into play. And another change has been the end of the Cold War. So you don't have... Uh, the second, quote-unquote, second world anymore. So that has become obsolete. But uh, definitely 
the designations of north and south, south, east and west are still in use. And I would, I would define the global north and global south in terms of like a binary pair with, with a symbiotic relationship uh, representing development and underdevelopment, underdevelopment and other, you know, terms uh, mm. that are around it. So global north and global south would be more economic, you know, uh, it's economic factors that differ them. And I see east and west more in terms of ideology, what differentiates them based in ideology. So the West uh, in Western discourse is portrayed as the more advanced one, as the more progressive one, as the more industrialized scientific base, and the East as more backwards, as more traditional, and so on and so forth. And uh, to the North and South, uh, as to the divisions between North and South, you also have that, but it's more in terms of... um, economic development because ideological and economic quote-unquote development go in hand, hand in hand so they use that terminology when they're talking about parts of the world in in different ways or for different questions mm-hmm. and you were mentioning before the dependency theory and the critique and how at, at its core it actually didn't change that much could you expand on that well, I can, uh, there are different strands of dependency theory, but I think the one that we know the most in Latin America, because it's the most successful one, and also it came from Latin America, it's um, Fernando Henrique Cardoso and Faletos' um, take on dependency theory. And um, it was also adopted, you know, beyond Latin America uh, in, in African countries such as Mozambique. And uh, Brazil and Mozambique also could connect in that way. And basically, it means working within the system with the developmental parameters in place in order to have a bigger piece of the capitalist pie. So it does not try to, you know, bring down the theory of modernization or promote an alternative. It gives, you know, ways in which Brazil could become a more industrialized country, a more uh, powerful country. So it doesn't, it's not at the bottom of the totem pole. And Fernando Henrique Cardoso gave an interview on this um, some years ago saying that, you know, I don't like capitalism, but it's unavoidable. So we must work within it. Um, So it never quite challenged what it meant to be developed. It just said, you know, Countries should do something to try to get out of their disadvantage. And this is what you can do within the system, you know, instead of like overturning it. So, and you were mentioning before that Gilberto Freire was a key figure in redefining Brazil's place as a global actor. Um, So we could say he provides like the foundation for the key ideas justifying Brazil's presence in Africa. Yes. Um, Could you tell us maybe first who he was, why he was so influential? And then, um, yeah, maybe more about his ideas of like, and particularly the term lusotropicalism. Uh, Gilberto Freire was, uh, I believe he was born in 1900, so right after the abolition of slavery in Brazil. And his grandmother was actually a plantation owner. And uh, so his 
particular social class was going through a loss of power and of status in society. So they needed to adapt somehow, right? Um, so Gilberto Freire, he, he went to study abroad. He studied in the United States and uh, spent some time in Europe as well. Um, and interestingly, while he was abroad, he started looking at Brazil in a different way. You know, this often happens, I think. And then uh, in 1933, after having spent some time abroad, he wrote um, The Masters and the Slaves, Casa, Casa Grande Cesala, which is probably his uh, best-known book. And it was innovative, as I said before, because it recognized some of the contributions of uh, Africans to Brazilian society, but always in a subaltern position. And um, he portrayed slavery almost as a benign institution. And he would say, you know, that the slaves were, you know, part of the family, you know. And this is very similar to what people would say about housekeepers who were getting paid, you know, uh, very little and uh, lived in the household even as I was growing up. You know, almost everyone that I knew, you know, in the middle class, middle class upwards had a housekeeper, you know. And the, yeah, no, 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 they're part of the family, but they're always, you know, sitting in the kitchen you know, having lunch and not sitting at the table. But it's really amazing how the ideas from this book and the ideas that he was spreading and his supporters and people who followed this theory were spreading, how they last, they have lasted for so long in Brazilian society, right? So with Casa Grande Cesala, he uh, focused on the domestic level. And then as he became more political as time wore on, and he had an allegiance with uh, the Salazar dictatorship in Portugal and with the Brazilian go government, also Getulio Vargas in 1950s. He uh, went on a, on a tour of the Portuguese colonies in Africa, and then he wrote a book uh, called um, Ulusio Tropico. Um, he, he also wrote other books about this, but this one was perhaps the most interesting and the one I focus the most in my book because he wrote this it, during uh, special celebrations in Portugal of colonialism. So this was basically a propaganda book, right? Um, but it became so influential in terms of the way in which diplomats uh, communicated with uh, their contacts in Africa. Uh, even during the Brazilian dictatorship, there was a lot of activity of diplomats going to Africa trying to win over markets there on the heels of uh, the, end, the end of colonialism. And uh, ex actually, uh, an American scholar called uh, Jerry Davila, he wrote a book called Hotel Tropico, where he talks about this Lusotropico-inspired action in Africa in the 60s and 70s. And how Brazilians would go there and say, yeah, no, we're just like you guys. We're like, there's no prejudice in our country and we can make great business deals together. And then Brazil started selling its equipment, saying that it was more appropriate for the African environment because Brazil was a tropical country like the African country. So they had similar environments and they were, uh, that Brazil was in a position as a mediator between Africa and Western countries, African countries and Western countries, because it had been colonized by the Portuguese, but also had African influences. So this very much uh, became 
a political discourse also tied to Brazil's position in between, because Brazil was trying to be a cordial, a cordial player in international relations and pragmatic player and um, uh, try to find markets everywhere that it could. So it would say whatever was appropriate for that occasion. It was very flexible in its, in its diplomacy. And in Africa, that's what it was saying. But in Brazil, this was not reflected in Brazilian society and in the treatment of black people in Brazilian society. Um, and most people in Brazil, I would say that they still know very little about these uh, fellow former Portuguese colonies in Africa or, yeah, if they care at all. You know, I'm not sure. So um, I certainly didn't know about them until I moved abroad. So I had heard of them, but, you know, my, my knowledge was folkloric at best. So, And another thing that was pretty... Um amazing when I was reading it is that uh, in this discourse they use slavery actually as um, another factor to justify Brazil's presence in, in, in Africa, right? You say that um, Brazil's uh, cooperation projects are sold as a way to uh, retribute uh, African countries for all the enslaved peoples um, that Uh, were taken to Brazil and how um, as a sort of like repaying a debt? Yeah, repaying a, using development to repay a debt, yeah. For Africans being forcefully taken to Brazil and helping build so much of uh, Brazilian society. Uh, but there, there's an, another part of this discourse is that uh, slavery created the first connections the first economic connections between Brazil and Africa, like directly, like the, the slave trade. And there are a lot of uh, returnees. Uh, when they were freed, they went back to Africa. So you do have, yeah, descendants of Brazilian slaves uh, living in Africa. And during the 60s, there was a big promotional campaign there where, you know, returnees who had come to occupy important political positions participated and said, yes, we're all kindred spirits and... So that's why we should have deals together, you know. But then you also mentioned that, for instance, most of the people that were taken uh, from Africa were from the West Coast, the ones that arrived to Brazil, and not from regions like from what today is Mozambique, right? Yeah, most of them came from West Africa. Some did come from Mozambique, but the majority, like the... I would say that the closest connections between Brazil and Africa in, in terms of the former Portuguese colonies are with Angola. There's a stronger relationship with Angola than with uh, Mozambique in terms of economic, in terms of uh, trade, and in terms of culture, probably as well. Even though, I mean, Brazilian soap operas, I mean, in contemporary times, you know, this does influence uh, people. You know, the Brazilian soap operas, the Brazilian church, That's also present in Mozambique. The um, evangelical church, Igreja Universal, is very much present there. So that all also brings, you know, a lot of Brazilian elements into popular culture there. And did this presence expand together with the development projects? Or was it something that you think was independent or that? Um, I think it all started happening around the... I mean... Development came before. Development deals came before the church, for sure. 
But on the heels of Brazilian communities being formed there, you have other Brazilians coming, you know, because Igreja Universal, uh, it's probably easier for them to make it there if there are already some Brazilians in the community, you know, um, some people who already follow the church to also help indoctrinate others, you know. Uh, but development aid itself uh, between Brazil, Mozambique informally started already, I would say, in the 1970s. Um, and during and after the war, actually members from the Brazilian Communist Party were going to Mozambique to work in the government to help with rebuilding the country. And, um, and then in 1981, there was uh, an official cooperation deal even during the Brazilian dictatorship, even though they were supposed to be diametrically opposed in their ideology. Uh, so I would say, you know, the, the first, uh, in contemporary times, it was uh, diplomatic action, and then, you know, other things followed after that. But definitely uh, these things are connected because, you know, of the nature of the service industry, you know, one thing attracts the other. And you provide a very detailed account of how uh, Freire's ideas were adopted and adapted by state officials in Brazil. And you go through the different governments of um, Cubiche, Cuadros, Goulart. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? And then, as you were mentioning, how that changed with the end of uh, the dictatorship in Brazil? Sure. Um, until uh, Jani Cuadros' election... In 1960, um, the Brazilian presidents and other high-level politicians were focusing on the part of Freire's theory that talked about how Portugal and Brazil were close. So they would talk about Brazil and Portugal as agents and the colonies in Africa as passive recipients of their advances. Uh, so during the Kubitschek, Uh, presidency, there was even uh, sort of a megalomania, you know, saying that maybe, you know, Brazil can join Portugal in, you know, colonial efforts in these countries and partake in the loot, basically. And then, uh, but already during Kubitschek, there were some currents in Brazil that wanted, you know, to give more agency to African countries in the discourse and saw, you know, African countries more as that it could be a better deal for Brazil to look at them by taking Portugal more out of the equation and taking the lead also because Portugal was declining as a colonial power at the time. Um, so when uh, the election of Quadros in 1960 marked the advent of the independent foreign policy in Brazil, where this particular camp that wanted to give more importance to African countries came to power, right? And this was also as a response to the United States not giving as much importance to, import, importance to Brazil as a partner as Brazil thought that it deserved because it had, you know, helped uh, the United States during World War II and, you know, it considered itself... Almost as a when it was convenient, it considered itself a Western country, um, and um, so it was looking to diversify markets. And in the 1960s, you know, this big effort started to you know send diplomats 
more diplomats to Africa, to send more economic expeditions to Africa. And this continued through um, the João Goulart presidency until 1964, until there was... until his government was overthrown by the military. And then for the first few years, while the war was going on, the colonial wars that started in 1961, while they were going on, uh, Brazil went back to a more of a stance of supporting Portugal and not uh, in detriment of these countries' independence. But then as it was getting closer... To independence, like the the you know the mid seventies, uh, beginning to mid seventies, then Brazil started you know putting in more efforts again in Africa, and then it became uh, the first country to recognize independence of certain countries, independence of Angola. You know they like to say that, uh, but at the same time it was waffling in the United Nations, so trying to. Please Portugal at the same time, and please uh, the nascent regimes in Africa to be in that in-between position and 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 gain new markets. Um, and then Petrobras came to Angola in the 1970s, and then you know the military dictatorship had no problem dealing with these countries, even though uh, economically, even though you know they had socialist regimes. So I would say that the pragmatic, the pragmatism has remained in Brazilian politics. It has been a running thread in Brazilian politics, no matter pretty much who's in power, if they're, you know, right wing or left wing. Or, um, but you, oh, sorry. And then um, there was uh, a period of great activity. And then in the 90s, it died, died down a bit where, you know, when the structural adjustments happened and economic crises and liberalization, and then it picked back up with Lula. And many scholars credit Lula with starting a rapprochement with Africa, but actually, you know, there had been periods before him where this happened and he was reviving a certain kind of discourse that uh, had been repressed during the dictatorship to a certain extent. Right then, but with Lula, you do see a more kind of aggressive propaganda regarding this um, cooperation and and reapproachment uh, with Africa. But then you do you also um, conducted a lot of interviews uh, with diplomats and and in Mozambique as well, and they sort of give another image of this relationship. Right, it's, they don't seem to give the same importance to Brazil that Brazil of itself yeah I mean it also depends on their position in government um, I would say that diplomats I for example interviewed a diplomat who had been in Brazil who had lived in Brazil he had this great expressed this great love for Brazil you know basically Brazil could do no wrong and it was a very important partner in this and that but when you start talking more with the technocrats you know the people you know who, who deal directly with the projects, then they say, you know, Brazil is one more partner. It's an important partner, but it's one more partner among many others uh, mm-hmm. as we try to diversify our, our connections. Um, and so it was very interesting to, to hear this from them because often, you know, we just get one side of the story. I, I, often we only get the Brazilian side of the story, not 
nearly as much importance is given to the Mozambican point of view in right. this because Mozambique is the quote unquote recipient. And then there's this like idea that it's common sense that Brazil is a certain kind of donor, an emerging and a cordial kind of donor. And it's so like its technical cooperation is so important in Africa, but it's technical cooperation. Actually, when you start looking at the numbers, when you start talking to people, it's a very, very small part of it. You know, even within uh, Brazilian development cooperation, it's a very small part, at least, you know, financially. They say, oh, it's more about, you know, giving training and this and that. But still, this aid cannot be compared to the aid of, um, you know, the United States, for example, or even China now. Like China has, you know, of the emerging powers, China is the one that's getting the closest to the OECD, of course, in terms of aid. Hmm. You, you, maybe we should go to the different uh, projects you study. You actually studied three uh, projects in three different sectors, mining, health, and agriculture. Yep. Could you, could you start with the mining project? Because being it an industry with deep colonial roots, how did the government in Mozambique justify this project and what were the results? Well, the, the mining project, actually, I... Uh, I went to the archives at Itamarachi, uh, the foreign ministry in Brazil, and I asked for the, all the boxes about uh, from the um, from relations with Mozambique, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I read like as many diplomatic cables as I could, and the mining project was the one that came up the most. It's one like the main, I would say, the main continuing thread in their relations since the 1970s. There was even, you know, uh, it was still a colony. And in 1971, they were already talking about this. A Brazilian diplomat was already saying, we need to do this project because this project is what's going to guarantee, you know, economic relations between Brazil and Mozambique. And all these countries are trying to come in here already, you know, and we have a lot of competition. And then this same discourse is repeated over time, you know, in like with a little bit of difference, but this is, you know, and, um, but it's a story of many Brazilian diplomats pushing for this project to be done. And in Mozambique, especially President Joaquin Chisano pushing this to be done as well. Um, uh, but it was not until the 2000s that, um, Brazil agreed to do this project, that Vale do Rio Doce, now Vale, agreed to do this project. They kept going back and forth on whether to do this or not, because it was like a huge endeavor. Um, since colonial times, yeah, Portugal had been trying to develop the coal mining industry in Mozambique, but there are always logistical challenges. And... Um, challenges in terms of conflicts as well. And these themes also kept repeating themselves over time and you still have them. So it's very interesting to see these same threads running through, you know, many years and different regimes and things like that. And the way that Mozambique justified um, taking up this project was we need to develop the country. You know, that's their discourse. We would do whatever it takes to develop this country. The Portuguese already had some blueprints and we decided to expand on them to expand on the infrastructure that we already had. And this pragmatic discourse was also a running thread when I spoke to um, Mozambican officials. 
Um, Pascual Mokumbi, who was one of the leaders of the independence movement, said to me that actually they didn't really care who they went with. <laughs> so, so like at independence, they wanted to go with the ones who were giving him the were giving them the best deal. Of course. In terms of, of aid. So I don't know how they, they, they actually felt at the time. But now, you know, he told me this, that we're, we wanted to develop the country. So that justifies everything, you know, um, in, in, in this discourse. Um, and, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, uh, if you could compare it maybe with the other two projects and, and the different focus, um, the one where they... Well, I think that the focus is, is trying to highlight the idea of uh, making Mozambique a, um, a country less dependent on foreign aid, right? With one project trying to uh, create a factory for Mozambique to produce and sell its own anti-HIV medicines. And the other one um, trying to modernize, whatever that means, the mm -hmm. agriculture uh, system in the country. So they're all connected, Right, they're all connected. Um, the first connection is that uh, part of the money for the factory came from Valley, right? The company that uh, heads the mining project at Moachisi. And um, could you explain why they chose to also give the money for this project? So they have a corporate social responsibility wing, and they have a lot of projects going on. And they have very, of course, close relations with uh, Brazilian Development Agency and Brazilian, you know, different departments of the Brazilian government. So they were asked to step in uh, when Mozambique was was having trouble with protests and food prices and, and things like that to give this money um, as a contribution. So in in a sense, they became a development actor as well, Vale. Um, mm -hmm. And um, in terms of Prosavana, Prosavana is part of the same development corridor as the Moachuzi mines. So it's all connected, you know, in a sense of uh, resources being shipped around. And um, there's very much this idea of spillover um, in the Mozambican what, discourse. What is this, this term of this spillover? Spillover is when you have an industry... An extractive industry. So this would justify having an extractive industry in their discourse, because then other industries will pop up around it, right? To you know, serve the rich people who are coming in, uh, in relation to the mining project. Then you have tourism, you know. So this is an example of spillover. And uh, actually, this agriculture project, like and the factory project, they all they they all came together with this mining project, you know, so one thing brings in another and then you have a whole, you know, small companies being developed to serve the needs of this mining project or the needs of ProSavana, the agricultural project, also in relation to the factory. So this is the idea. And the idea is also that extractive projects will, um, as you said, spill over into less dependency for the country because then it'll develop more of its own industries because of that. And it's like, in a sense, contradiction because it's a lot of it is dependent on foreign money. So you're <laughs> using dependency to get out of dependency, you know, <laughs> kind of a circular, circular reasoning in a, in a sense. Um, so in yeah. your view, uh, 
do this does the kind of thinking work <laughs> or should we shift the paradigm or could it, is there a way of um measuring the success of these projects and their goals it it's difficult it, it depends on what your definition of success is you know right. is your definition of success having an x number of industries um is your definition of success being able to produce your own vegetables you know um so in a so in a sense okay you're producing vegetables but you're still a commodity provider you're producing coal but you're still a commodity provider so how do you get out of that role as a commodity provider and if you get out of that role maybe you know probably another country is going to be your commodity provider you know and this is like the whole notion of development it's like you're getting up someone else has to be down you know to do the jobs that you're not doing anymore so is there a way to think beyond this to to have a more, uh, more equitable system you know where the division of labor is more equitable is there a way million <laughs> <laughs> dollar question way? <laughs> <laughs> but i think i mean it's worth asking these questions you know there there hasn't been a you know I guess a dominant theory that has really challenged what, you know, development is supposed to mean, what actually happiness is supposed to mean. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, because we are so used to measuring happiness by possessions and we think that this is, you know, what we should strive for. This is what makes an evolved human being, you know? So it would take a huge change in mentality, you know, because, you know, also people in Africa, they, you know, they want these things. You know, we have all, all been taught to want these things, to measure our worth based on possessions, on how we look, on the cars that we drive, you know. And I'm not sure that's really success or if it's a trap, you know. But I don't know anything else either, so. <laughs> but I think about these things a lot, even like in my daily life, you know, especially with Corona. <laughs> We have time to think about We that. We have time to think about it, yeah. And when they talk about human development, are they trying to move away f- from this um, mode of thinking or, or is it part of the same paradigm? It's part of the same because human development is directly tied to productivity. They want to improve conditions for people so they will be more productive. And then they want to improve, you know, productive capacity so there will be more human development so they're you know very much tied to each other but like if you read their uh, development strategies they talk about you know high rates of hiv making people unable to work <laughs> you know so we should reduce the you know the hiv rates because it's all part of this infrastructure you know and during colonial times they also talked about human development you know Um, so the discourse has been recycled even by international organizations and it's all tied to uh, greater productivity and industrialization because you have to have healthy workers. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm not saying that it's completely about that. I'm sure, you know, they care about people to a certain extent. <laughs> um, but again, I mean, even like, I, I would say even in, in the United States, you know, There is this discourse of like maximum productivity, self-optimization. And I think human, oh, yeah, development totally. in the, <laughs> human development in the U.S. is very much tied to that too. 
you know, let's oil that machine well, you know, <laughs> make sure that it lives and produces as long as possible, you know. Yeah, even yeah. pleasure is uh, measured in terms of being productive. <laughs> Yeah. Later time. There are so many self-help books, you know, in the U.S. about this. And since we're coming to contemporary times, you've finished your book uh, like a year ago, I guess, and you didn't have much time to include um, or to f reflect on uh, Bolsonaro's uh, presidency in Brazil and how that ha might have changed or actually not um, their relations with uh, Africa Could you, do you have, since you finished your book, do you, have you seen anything different or anything that was, was surprising or are well, things still the same? I mentioned a little bit the Bolsonaro presidency and how mm -hmm. they were already interested in Africa. Um, they don't claim to have, you know, close bonds with Africa, but they're uh, definitely interested economically in, for example, Mozambique. Um, already early in his administration, he sent people to visit the factory, the medicine factory in Mozambique. And um, they, from, from what I understand, they want to turn this more into a commercial endeavor, also for Brazil, rather than like a social endeavor, which is very much in alignment with The Bo Bolsonaro's neoliberal discourse, right? So there is. I mean, the the pragmatism is still there. I mean, if there's a good business de business deal in Africa, they won't shy away from that. You know. You also said at, at one point that this pragmatism um, has also been harmful to Brazil's image because they don't seem to be able to keep up to their promises, or they are not that reliable if they change according to their interests. That's right. So in one sense, the pragmatism and uh, the flexibility makes them less reliable. It also makes them promise more things that they, they can deliver on, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Lula made a lot of promises that they cannot deliver on uh, because a lot of agreements are made by presidential handshake and then the development agency could not deliver on it. And on the other hand, uh, Brazil uses its pragmatism of flexibility and do like identity as an emerging power, like in between, you know, um, a developed and developing country to tell these countries that, you know, they're more rela relatable. So when Brazil messes up, it's like, oh, it's because we're still a developing country like you. <laughs> I'm we're sure like, you understand. Right. You know? So it's like it's really, you know, they they use it's very malleable, like the lusotropicalism discourse is malleable to fit different occasions. So they can use it to talk to to African countries, they can use it to talk to former colonial powers, you know, like they can use it on the right wing, the left wing, you know. It's um it very much mirrors, you know, the Brazilian mixed identity <laughs> <laughs> in world politics. Yeah. Well, well, thank you so much for this wonderful talk. Um, I think we're taking quite a lot of your time now, but um, would you like to tell us a little bit of uh, what you're working on right now? Or 
what your next projects are? So right now I'm, a, I'm applying for postdoc positions and the project that I would like to do involves participatory budgeting in Mozambique. Um, so this participatory budgeting initiative started actually in Porto Alegre in Brazil in the late 1980s. And then the World Bank took this and started implementing it in uh, countries around the world, especially, you know, African countries. And actually, it's, um, it involves regular citizens having a say on how cities spend their money. That's a, the simple version. Huh. Yeah. So I would like to spend some time in Mozambique to see how this, uh, these projects are working out on the ground and how much localized they have been and how much they, um, like, not appropriate, but how much they're using, like, the global participatory budgeting discourse and how much of it is their own. I don't know if I'm making myself clear. (laughs) (laughs) So how much, like, these lines, you know, are, you know, being put to practice and how much they come up with their own approaches and whether people are really allowed to participate in the decision-making or whether this is just on paper, you know? So I would like to know how it's operationalized on the ground there. So is there another trip to Mozambique awaiting you? I hope so. I hope, yeah. (laughs) Definitely at some point. I mean, not right now, for sure. Of course. (laughs) First, also, I need to find a postdoc position. So if you hear of anything, let me know. (laughs) (laughs) But um, with this corona nightmare, um, I, maybe some of it can be done remotely, you know, but the, the ideal situation would be to be there and observe this in action, actually, on the ground. Yeah, of there. course. Yeah. Well, I, I hope, yeah, that you find a postdoc soon and that you can do this project so that we can talk about it next time. That would be wonderful. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you.